0: My name is Corvin. And I'm Martin. Do you want to start over?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: My name is Corvin.
1: Hey, Corvin. This is Martin.
0: You're Oh, no, I don't think that works. My name is Corvin.
1: Hey, Corvin. What's up? This is Martin.
0: I, I think let's actually stick to the script for just this part of it.
1: I hate this script, and I'm Martin. What the fuck is that?
0: Okay. Be more friendly. Like we're, It's like we know each other. That's true. Why don't I start with... I'll just do the entire you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast an eco-socialist yeah, podcast and then you can you can chime in. Okay. All right. So, you're tuning into Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. My name is Corbin.
1: Hey Corbin, this is Martin. How you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Uh, you may remember listeners that Martin and I had a conversation a few weeks ago about Martin's new book, The Trudeau Formula. And we got uh, cut off midway, and here we are uh, finishing up the conversation. But now we're post-election, so that's what we're going to be talking about most of the time. And uh, why don't we just get right into it? The election's over. Uh, it was a liberal minority, which from my point of view was uh, my desired outcome, a liberal minority with the NDP among the parties holding the balance of power. I don't think going into the election, at least I didn't, and, and I didn't hear anyone else saying they expected the bloc to be another party holding the balance of power. Uh, well, what about you, Martin? What What's your hot take on the election? Maybe not so hot anymore.
1: My, I think my friend Derek put it really well. He said it's the worst case scenario of the best case scenario, right? In that we got the liberal minority, but the NDP certainly didn't do as well as some of us thought they would, considering the surge, you know, that many people were talking about in the last week or two, right. based on, you know, a pretty pretty decent um, campaign performance from Jugmeet, And, um, you know, they fell short of um, the seats that I think a lot of people were hoping they would get, including the a lot of, you know, really talented socialist or socialist leaning potential MPs, candidates in Toronto lost, including Minseth Lee and uh, Paul Taylor. So that was disappointing.
0: Although they did get two pretty good and, and also Sven Robinson in Sven Robinson, yes. Burnaby, a, yeah. Burnaby North Seymour, am I right there? Yeah. Uh unfortunately Sven didn't get in. And Sven probably has the most clearly socialist politics of of anyone who was content anyone who's been in the party elected uh in the last few decades Mm. that's unfortunate that those candidates didn't win now this this thing of the orange what was it called the orange tide or the orange surge i I almost said the orange
1: uprising
0: (laughs) um or yeah the uprising was that grounded in in data or was that just a sense of People feeling good about the campaign when they had gone into it with fairly dismal expectations?
1: I mean, you could discern definitely a, tr- a trend in the polls. There was an uptick in favorability polling for Jugmeat as a leader. And it did seem like, you know, the NDP as a choice for voters uh, had moved into the 20% territory. Um, but what we also know is that there was a poll that came out just, I think, on Friday that showed that um you know a lot of our worries about the strength of strategic the strategic voting argument really played out because um i forget if it was um i think it was abacus they put out a poll that showed that 50% of late deciding liberal voters so people who went liberal in the last days decided to do that because they they were persuaded by the strategic voting argument
0: right including people in my riding where the conservatives always run a distant third And, you know, I know people who are like, well, I'm voting liberal to stop Scheer. And it's like, no, actually, you just stopped uh, Andrew Cash, who was the closest NDP candidate in Toronto to winning the riding. So, yeah, I think that was a factor for sure. But what happened, I think, to really thin uh, the NDP numbers was losing all but one of their seats in Quebec, which seemed in a way, I I mean... In the, in the long run, seemed a foregone conclusion just beca- and really a re- case of regression to the mean, just because the, gr- the victories they had in the 2011 election were pretty anomalous and didn't really seem organic. And we know that, you know in the last few years, the Quebec electorate has been the most volatile of any in the country. So those weren't seats that I, I, I think, in the long run anyone was banking on, so that seemed to be where most of their losses took place. Am I wrong?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Um those, yeah, they think they lost what, like fifteen seats, fourteen seats? They in, lost uh, a lot of
0: seats and, and and I think that was more or less in the cards from the beginning. So the upsurge in support was outside Quebec and it was just not A, not enough to um to to win in many places, and B perhaps offset by these late deciding liberal voters.
1: And it's, yeah, and it's obvious too that the other um, weakness was that the NDP simply doesn't have the um, the active base like in riding associations, and the broader left certainly doesn't have the kind of infrastructure, media wise, uh, to amplify the successes that Jugmeet was having on the kind of campaign trail. So, yeah.
0: and so let's maybe that- talk about Jugmeet for a little bit because I think yeah. he did a good job on the campaign trail. He was very good on his feet. I had always said all along, even though. He really had very little profile in the media leading up to the election, really, since he was chosen as as leader, and whether that was racism, which no doubt was a part of it, or just his inability to articulate anything that was getting people's attention, I don't really know. But I always felt like, you know once he's in those debates where they have to include him, right? And he has a bus full of reporters following around and they have to report on him, he's a pretty he's a pretty engaging, likable person. And he seems pretty grounded, like in responding to difficult scenarios, uh, a lot of race, you know, being exposed to a lot of racism, I guess he has practice in that. And that really came through and that's, uh, he has a lot of personal appeal. So I think he did well on that. And also I think he got better at political messaging and maybe we can though talk a little bit about the, the platform he had to work with and the platform that. Uh, that they ran on and, and some of the weaknesses and how m- that might've played into the outcome of the, of the election. And, and I'm thinking particularly about the green new deal, which is to me, the biggest lost opportunity they had and whose weaknesses had actually been flagged way back. I think in may by Sven Robinson, who'd said the party sort of coming up with a pretty weak green new deal, talking about 2050 targets for, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the carbon reductions, And even my local candidate was knocking on the door around that time. And and I said, look, I just heard this. And he said, oh yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. We're trying to get them to change it. And they didn't. So, so in the party, people knew that that was a bad idea. Do you think that affected in any way the, or inflected their reception?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think they definitely didn't read the, the political temperature in the country and they the people in Ottawa i think and others who run the party really don't get just how hungry Canadians are for a vastly more ambitious like policies on climate change um i think what they did is they you know they it was evident to them that you know that green new deal was taking off in the states you know with AOC and Bernie Sanders and they were very aware that the green new deal also had started picking up in momentum within canada and i think in early may there were 150 town halls organized around the country and my sense is is that the kind of you know blairites who ran this campaign sensed um, sense that they had to you know they would have to kind of like selectively cherry pick from the green new deal framework so what we got was this very milquetoast um new deal for the people which as you say you know included you know some important Policies like free public transit, except that they, you know, dated it to its implementation to twenty fifty, right? Um, and in terms of the investment as well, it was woefully inadequate uh, to the task, and it really paled alongside what we're seeing from some of the, for instance, U.S. Democratic presidential candidates. So right. you know,
0: or even I that, which I think was pointed out by many in the campaign, uh, you know, in the media what the greens were offering just in sense of in the sense of responding to the urgency of the crisis like yeah. the green plan seemed more like a plan that was taking the climate change crisis seriously on the time scale in which it needs to be addressed and i got the feeling when i read the ndp plan that this is cobbled together by people who don't really they're not really that concerned about the issue. This is just, like you said, something they knew they needed to do. But, you know, what are the polls saying? This is like, is this the first election where for as many, isn't it a majority of the population? Climate change is a, an issue of great concern or even the yeah. number one issue?
1: Yes. Yeah. It, it. I think it tended to like hover, hover in either the top spot or the second spot through the course of the election. And I mean, it's like, no wonder, right? Like every summer, like BC is burning every fall, uh, Quebec is flooding. Right. So it's like people get it increasingly in an, in an everyday way, in a way that they definitely visceral,
0: like in a visceral sense, they get this it's happening. It is happening at a speed that we can perceive, right? Like it's, it's, it's pretty distressing. And so, in light of all that, I think what's also remarkable is that the mainstream media just didn't treat it like that kind of issue, right? Like it was always and and you know you you can understand this with the Global Mail or the National Post always had to be counterweighed against the the interests of the oil industry in the sense that that's still Canada's economic driver, and and I think the NDP might have fallen prey a bit to that as well with some vain hope of retaining seats in Alberta that or or shoring up the ndp support in alberta
1: Mm -hmm. that's part of it i mean just to get a sense of like why why they lack so much ambition like for instance one of the people who was the drafters of the platform was rick smith right like he he was one of the co-drafters Head of Broadbent institute they hold their summit their big you know progressive summit in um i think it was in march or april of 2019 and you know this is like in the states the Green New Deal is just exploding as a political framework, generating a huge amount of attention and interest. And at the Broadband Summit, like there is not a single mention of the Green New Deal in any one of the major panels. Never mind, like you know, to my mind, it should have been like the theme of the entire summit, right? And you know, they, they, there are certain climate justice groups who called them out on that fact, right? Um, they were
0: still smarting from the Leap Showdown a few years ago, which you were part of engineering.
1: It's possible, but, you know, like the Green New Deal to many people is an entirely new frame, even though it's not like it's just a U.S. version of the Leap Manifesto. And in some ways, actually, some of the main people who galvanized the movement for a Green New Deal were directly inspired by the Leap Manifesto in Canada. But all to say that, um, you know, this, the, the, the head of broadband, Rick Smith, is also the person who has a hand in writing the platform. So to my mind, it's not a surprise that that they're not taking on the central message and premise of the green new deal which is that we need to take on in an epic epic way the crisis uh of climate change um and propose solutions I also see that,
0: that as an opportunity right like it's not just we have to do it it is in fact a major opportunity if you have really left a left political ambition you'd be like this is an opportunity
1: yes it's both a necessity but also it has a huge amount of strategic promise and you know then they put down in the platform you know, a, a pledge for $15 billion of, uh, of spending, right? Like, that's, that's, like a, that's like a third of the taxes that are just evaded every year legally and illegally in this country, right? right. And it pales right. alongside what we're seeing from, for instance, Bernie Sanders, whose plan calls for $17 trillion, right? Like, he's talking about actually retooling the economy. Yeah, $15 um,
0: billion dollars total is nothing. That's enough to pay for daycare for everyone for one year, but...
1: Exactly. So, so I I don't think they they understand both the the scope of the crisis that we're in, and they don't understand the 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 the, poss- the political possibility and opportunity here. Uh, that said, like I think people, because it was a, a still considerably more than the NDP has ever put in their platform in the last you know twenty years or so.
0: It, it, what it was came there off as a more ambitious platform
1: exactly, yeah. and that yeah. that in itself started inspiring people. Um, and they were I also think, pinned
0: in the a bit by the green platform, which had come out before theirs did.
1: Yes. And I would say also, to my mind, the the main reason that we saw that leftward shift wasn't even the fact that they saw that the energy and, and excitement about the Green New Deal, but was because Paul Manley won that by-election. Um And, you know, the entire media pundit class started um yeah, the high election
0: in Nanaimo, for people who don't know. And he'd been pushed out of the NDP because of pro-Palestinian views?
1: That's that's my understanding.
0: That's, I think uh, that's the word on I the street. I don't know if that's ever been confirmed, but, you know.
1: We're yeah, he's never confirmed it publicly, but...
0: Allegedly. Uh, we'll just put allegedly on there.
1: Yeah, and so he won, and instantly, like, the liberals and the corporate media seized on it as this opportunity to start... Um, beating the drum about how the NDP was going to go through another collapse in the upcoming election. Right. So I, I think the Green Party is- kind of, they got the electoral logic of it, right? And they started worrying about the NDP eating it, uh, the Green Party eating into their flank.
0: Sure. And- Especially in BC where uh, I think the Vancouver Island is a bit of a unique case that is maybe not generalizable, but in the lower mainland, there's huge opposition to the pipeline. Yes. And so I think they're vulnerable there.
1: And the Greens have been both at the provincial level uh, in BC and at the federal much clearer about um, actually opposing the building of new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is a a basic necessity in the in this moment of climate crisis. And you know, Jugmeet had for years during his initial leadership campaign for the NDP, and then since then, just been so wishy-washy on the question of pipelines. Pipeline,
0: yeah, and Uh, and, and they've been. They, I think they at one point came out for the LNG terminal, um, and I don't know if they backed off on that, but they've been wishy-washy on that too. Yeah. So, so yeah, and in the midst of this election, of course, as we said last time, the the climate strikes happened, and you were in Edmonton then. Uh, the the Montreal event was the Montreal demo was five hundred thousand people. You know, one of the largest was it the largest in in memory in Montreal? I I don't know.
1: Largest in Canadian history.
0: Largest in Canadian history.
1: Canada was 350,000 uh, in 2012 at the peak of the, the student, student strikes.
0: strikes. Right. And it wasn't really covered as the big deal that it was, in my opinion, in the media, unless there's media I didn't see that did cover it that way. And, and so I'm not sure what impact it had on the election, but it, it is pretty striking as an expression of... Popular will and sentiment around the issue on top of the polling and and you know the NDP's inability to put out an inspiring narrative that that says and I think part of it is they just have not they don't haven't internalized or digested the issue and they haven't seen because they're not really committed to a socialist agenda I think this comes down to it they're neoliberal to their core at this point. As are the other parties, you know, the Greens very much neoliberal and, and has is, is pretty bad on class issues, particularly when it comes to labor. But, you know, the NDP, because it doesn't have this in its bones anymore, can think like, OK, here is a chance for us to have a conversation about what's important as a society. What kind of world do we want to live in? And to the extent that you can see lines of traditional socialism in it, it's really just this fetish of major infrastructure, which I think is a problem with the green new deal in, in a lot of its incarnations, including in the U S and to some extent with the leap where, you know, we're not going to replace all the jobs that currently exist in the carbon economy. One for one with new jobs in, in major infrastructure or, or new types of transit. Some things are just going to shrink. Like tourism is going to shrink. There are things that are just going to shrink, but at the same time, if you plan it out, like this is what the drum I've been beating, which is take the low hanging fruit like conservation and home retrofits and and do this really aggressively, which is for one thing, the most job intensive part of what needs to be done. and we know you know I know their figures vary between twenty I've seen over the years figures between twenty and fifty percent of the carbon savings that are to be had are going to be had through conservation alone in housing commercial building stock and uh, transportation but you know if you prioritize those things they're job intensive so you get a job boom you get tax revenue and hopefully what you're doing is you're driving down the cost of energy in the meantime and that gives you a chance to raise taxes on energy in order to keep the price stable So that you don't get new sources of demand like Bitcoin, right? Like one of the things we just found out is that Bitcoin is using as much electricity generation as is generated by all solar power in the world now. And so you don't want that to happen, but then you have a revenue stream that can fund your major infrastructure. And in that window of five to 10 years, you can have a conversation, a big public conversation about what kind of a world we want to live in because there is contraction coming down the pipe and what's important to us. And then we can talk about shorter work weeks, childcare, et cetera, but you need to buy that window. And there's no sense in any of these plans, let alone the NDPs of what a major political and strategic challenge and opportunity this represents. Right. Whereas I think what you see in the streets and you know, what Greta Thunberg embodies for everybody, however problematic it is that it's all, you know, there's, there's this one teenage girl who's an avatar of all of this as admirable as she is. Uh, but you know, what seems to be palpable is that they get it. Like they get the urgency and that this is, this is unlike any crisis we've ever had to deal with. And you didn't feel that at all from the NDP. So that's what I,
1: what what was interesting is that even though you didn't see the, the NDP kind of consciously strategically channel all that energy From the climate strikes it still had an electoral impact so there was a poll that came out two days after the climate strike happened and it showed that support youth support in particular for the the liberal party plummeted i think basically 24 hours after the climate strike the liberal youth vote had dropped by 25 percent and some of the media was calling some of the media i think labeled this the greta effect but i think i actually think it's more accurately described as a mass protest effect, right? Like, you know, I think people in English Canada uh, who haven't really experienced mass protest in maybe a generation for, forget the, something that I think people in Quebec uh, keenly know, which is that, you know, these moments of mass protest transform people's consciousness, right? Like, right. they raise people's expectations. They sense as a
0: possibility.
1: Possibility. Like what, and, what we're seeing
0: or, in Chile now. I mean, it's just incredible, right? It's like... exactly. One minute tanks are in the street and they're killing people, and then a few days later, 1.5 million people are in the street. We don't know where it's going to end up, but it definitely creates a sense of power and possibility.
1: And so you saw exactly. You I think that a big part to do with why you saw that drop in Trudeau's support, and then over the next week or two, a lot of that youth vote vote shifted to um, to the NDP. And I think like you know ultimately in the last few weeks, the strategic argument. Voting arguments, uh, the fear mongering about the conservatives pulled a lot of that youth vote back to the liberals. Um, but there was this moment in which uh, it should have been aware, should have been you know keenly obvious to many people on the left just how important that kind of mass protest is, and it should have been keenly keenly obvious to the NDP as well. I think they did. Maybe try they to wouldn't have
0: lost it, that vote if they'd had a clearer, more inspiring message.
1: I think that's that's true. Um, you know, to their credit, they did. In the week, in the days after, is when I think Jugmeat went to Grassy Narrows. Yeah. And I think that was probably one of the other highlights of uh, his campaign. Absolutely. Uh, which is doing something that the NDP never does, which is directly amplifying the, the demands and perspectives of social struggles, right? Absolutely. Uh, that they've completely avoided in the, the last, you know, 10, 10 years, certainly under Mulcair. And I think, you know, it was interesting to see how jugmead who just you know all he did was point out the the blatant racist double standard of a question from one of the journalists who asked like you know but how could we possibly afford you know paying for um
0: clean the, water or the cleanup in indigenous communities
1: yeah. and that generated a huge amount of um, kind of like favor, sympathy, and momentum on, especially those who
0: didn't hear him, his answer was, would you ask that if we were talking about clean water for people in Vancouver, if I think if I remember correctly? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it was clearly like a prepared line, um, but he delivered it well. And, um, you know, it netted the kind of um, sympathy and support that you see regularly happening uh, when politicians like Bernie Sanders or AOC or Jeremy Corbyn do that kind of social movement amplification, yeah. um,
0: and then there was yeah. his his, uh, his reply to since you mentioned AOC, her tweet raising yes. taxes on the rich, and he's like, "On it," which was exactly pretty fun, pretty good.
1: No, and there was one, there was one other tweet that I just loved um, when John Iveson, who's that dreadful right wing reporter for the National Post, tweeted about how. The day that the NDP put out their fiscal plan, yeah, and he he tweeted something like, "You know, if you generate wealth in this country, you know, hold on to your wallets. Um, You know, the NDP is great at dividing your wealth." And and Jugmeet Singh actually tweeted out um, that actually it's the working people in this country that generate wealth. And I I was like, "Wow!" Like the NDP is bringing labor theory of value to 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 Twitter. It was like the first time
0: in good. content if you appropriate wealth, watch out for your wallet. (laughs) It was the first
1: exact it was the first time in good conscience that I like felt happy retweeting something from the NDP. And I think a lot of people felt that way, right. Um,
0: yeah, no, for and- sure. So let's be clear, this is a a much it it does represent, I think, a turn to the left for the NDP, certainly compared to MoCare's platform. And some of the provincial platforms we've seen, but even even in comparison to Jack Layton's very retail focused, I mean, the NDP did dabble a little bit with that with sort of lower cell phone bills. But I think they quickly dropped that as not a great message for this campaign.
1: And under Layton, I mean, they also, you know, like he he pulled he withdrew his plan to tax inheritance and,
0: um, you know, to like, no deficits. They did. You can call that election, you know, electioneering or whatever, but it seriously constrained their ability to, for example, respond to the financial crisis. Yeah. You know,
1: but what, what I worry about is that, that, that those kinds of, you know, left populist tweets that we were seeing from, you know, not from him, but in his name. Like there was a more likelihood of that happening in a campaign setting where things aren't nearly as scripted. You know, people have a bit more, you know, different people within the campaign team are empowered to do that. Whereas now that we've gone back to, you know, the the show being run out of the central office in Ottawa, that they're really going to, you know, dampen that kind of...
0: And they still try to, like Rachel Notley's NDP in Alberta is still doing some kind of weird rear guard defense of the oil industry when it didn't save them before and they're not coming back. Like, you know, you heard it here first, people, they are not, they're not coming back into office anytime soon. And... Alberta just went back to its, You know, I think there was a sort of an expectation. Alberta changes paradigms every 40 years or whatever that was. Cause they were social credit for 40 years. And then they were conservative for 40 years. And then maybe they'd be NDP for 40 years. No, they're just right. back to conservative again. And that actually is maybe something. Uh, I think it was Judy Rebick who made this point where she's like the elite media are all saying, this is a massive crisis, right? The country's going to split up Alberta, you know, Western alienation and Alberta, uh, Alberta's feelings are, um, uh, the most important issue we need to resolve right now, but as she said, Alberta just voted how, how they always vote, which is totally conservative, right? Except the difference now is Saskatchewan is becoming another Alberta, essentially economically and socially and politically. I think that's the the story where, whereas before it was really just Alberta. Now we have Saskatchewan and Alberta. And, um, you know, I, the day after the election, and I'm just going to respond. I'm an absolute Torontonian here. So, uh, but I, I was listening to, I don't know, Jesse Brown got in trouble for saying something similar to what I'm about to say. But the day after the election, they were doing these stupid streeters, right? Like how the media, they've already got their constructed narrative, right? Which is this, this crisis of regionalism. That's their big narrative. So they're going out to find people to speak their narrative for them. And they find somebody in Alberta who says, oh, you know, I believe in climate change. I believe in science. And, but, you know, they're telling me that in order to fight climate change, I have to give up my car and my house. And, you know, first of all, literally nobody amateurs, said that yeah. lights. L- Literally nobody said that. And in fact, if you looked at the parties that had platforms around it, they would have said, We're gonna have a strategy to to manage this transition for people like that. But it also doesn't get into the reality that job losses in Alberta, a lot of them are due to automation and they're just not coming back, right? But, you know, my response is nobody's entitled to that on the basis of an industry that has to stop. You're just not entitled to that on the basis of the oil industry. And, you know, that's where the conversation conversation needs to go. And the NDP, unfortunately, is playing its part in keeping the conversation where it is, I think.
1: Never mind the fact that, like, you know, the, the cries of Western alienation that we're hearing from Jason Kenney and other conservative politicians are like, you know, patently a uh, cynical cover for the austerity agenda that he's now shoving down the throats of Albertans, you know, um, huge corporate tax cuts and giveaways to the oil industry. Um, they're doing just fine. But they know something that the left doesn't know or seem to know, which is that even if you're getting everything you want, you keep hollering about how much suffering you're enduring and you just get, end up getting more. Yeah, uh, like the NDP and you know parts of the electoral left have this like real problem where they only ever ask for what they actually want and then don't even get that. Whereas if you ask for far more than what you want, you maybe end up getting what you want.
0: Yeah, that's a really basic lesson. It's, it's it's amazing that schoolyard lesson. Yeah, it's a schoolyard lesson. The NDP doesn't know it, and it's you know that's the same problem with mainstream Democrats in the U.S. Uh, and you know, and I don't know, but maybe since we're talking about Alberta and the oil industry. Maybe we can talk a little bit about w- what's happening now that the election is over and we're looking at a minority government looks like the, the I mean, the first announcement Trudeau made is we're going to get that pipeline built and presumably he's going to do it with conservative support. I, I don't know. I, th- I think that's in part a response to this elite narrative and it's just a way to, to tamp it down, but I, I still think it's going to be tied up in process, and and may never get built, must never get built. But what I'm hearing a lot from the left, uh, different you know different quarters of the left, is desire for some type of worked out coalition, collaboration between liberals and NDP and Greens, certainly between the liberals and the Greens and the Bloc, on a strategy for how to deal with the government. I don't know how realistic that is, uh, just in terms of the organizational cultures of the greens and the NDP and the Bloc's probable desire not to appear to be just too close to any of these federalists. You know, they don't, that's, that's not their point of view, but uh, you know, what's your sense of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I've, I, I've noticed these two trends on the left. One is yes, pushing for, you know, so-called collaboration between, um, between the green NDP bloc and liberal party or a coalition, which I think is far-fetched. Um, and then the, on the other hand, what I've seen from some radical leftists is, is just poo-pooing the fact that, uh, yes, the NDP does have a, in some cases now, a balance of power. Um, and they're just a lot of like leftists, who I guess just love being dour pessimists, uh, is to dismiss, uh, the openings that the left and the NDP does have now. Right. Um, so I think, you know, there are openings, they're not, they're not going to come. I think we, we shouldn't have any illusions about, about the NDP having, you know, a huge, um, huge leverage, like, you know, Trudeau's message. I think, you know, the first in the first press conference he gave this week was, I think, a message intended for the NDP, right. They were essentially staring them down and telling them, forget about. Any power that you might have in the immediate future will just rely on the conservatives. Just we...
0: say what happened in that first press conference.
1: Yeah, I mean, he 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 basically said the priorities are going to be Kinder Morgan a um, Trans Mountain Pipeline, which actually doesn't require any more parliamentary activity. Like it's been approved, it's it's caught as you say in the courts, and then eventually it w- will be stopped on the land. That's what I think. Um, but there's actually nothing. There's nothing left that they have to pass through Parliament, right? So he, he. I think he. You're right. He was responding to that elite narrative about, elite media narrative about the the West losing their minds. Um. And the other other priority he said is the is the tax cut agenda, right? Which is like straight out of a conservative playbook. And there's no doubt. I think that they'll get support from the the conservatives there. They know the NDP doesn't want to be forced into another election. They're totally broke.
0: Yeah, they're really uh, broke. And this is a. They were broke. Leading into this election, I don't think they'd manage to repay the mortgage on their headquarters, which is how they normally finance the re- the election before this election started. So they are really in the hole.
1: I think that, you know, where the the realistic prospect for the um, the NDP and the broader left is that, you know, we continue trying to push the NDP to anchor their opposition in an actual Visionary Green New Deal frame, and at some point, I think, like happened in two thousand and five under the last liberal minority, there will be an opportunity that emerges. Say, for instance, if it's not, it's not inconceivable, for instance, that there will be another corporate corruption scandal, right? Um, not and
0: inconceivable in scenario, at all.
1: Uh... Yeah, in that kind of scenario where you know the bloc and the conservatives might want to topple the government. There might be an opening, for instance, for the NDP to say, wait a second, like, we're not going to topple you, but only if you, in the next budget, for instance, like, forget about those tax cuts and instead plow $10 billion, $15 billion into a green energy transition. Right. I don't think the NDP can expect that the liberals are going to come scurrying to them anytime soon. Yeah,
0: that's true. Well, and and the kind of pressure that's going to be needed, uh, the kind of pressure that's going to be needed is going to come from not just, you know, voices like us on the left, but really, I think a sustained buildup of green, you know, climate strikes and, and climate organizing and, and probably some leading voices putting out much clearer politics. Like if the NDP were smart, I think they would realize, or they should realize that nobody Voted for the liberals this time around, except for diehard liberals, with the idea that Trudeau represents something that they really believe in. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it's really since this was a really abused metaphor in in the election. You know, I'm sure you saw it all over social media. Voting is harm reduction. This usually comes from people who historically said if voting worked, uh, then they make it illegal. So you know, yes. from a sort of anarchist crowd who are now saying, well, voting is harm reduction, and I think. Strategic voting for most people is a form of harm reduction, right? Yes. And so that's the problem with that logic of harm reduction when applied in this. In this.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're right. It, it's a good insight that it plays into the hand of uh, the liberal party because our notion of harm, the insurrectionary anarchist notion of harm reduction is not what is hegemonic. The, right. the notion of it- that's hegemonic is we vote to stop the tories
0: right and and people and i and i think even more so than most times right people no one has illusions about trudeau anymore and so i think if the ndp they they can't see this opportunity uh maybe it has to be provided to them right and you know i know the next big climate strike is planned for april but I would hope that more aggressive organizing takes place. And by that, I just mean ambitious, more ambitious organizing takes place before then, because I think you're right. That's the only thing that's going to change the narrative at, at the political level in Ottawa. But at the same time, what this election exposes to me is really, we do need uh, an actual left presence and voice, and it's not going to come from within these organizations. I mean, this, the, the structures are just too rigid. The personnel, uh, the organizational cultures, uh, are too resistant. They're not socialists. They're, they're not, they're not invested in these ideas or in, in a concrete political objective beyond electoral power. And so to me, this points up the, the ongoing crisis of neoliberalism is really a crisis of the left or the absence of an organized left political formation, Mm-hmm.
1: I agree. The I'm holding out hope, a little bit of hope, that we do see some of these new socialists who have been elected for the NDP break out of those fetters a bit. I'm thinking of people like Leah Gazan, maybe, from, from Winnipeg, who's a great indigenous activist, um, or Matthew Green, you know, who's a socialist uh, city councillor in Hamilton and now is elected for the NDP. Um, I'm hoping that they can play the kind of role that we saw in the States. Uh, played by AOC and her, you know, squad, squad um, where they really stake out a uh, left-wing position. Yeah, and so are, shout out are, to
0: AOC for her grilling of Mark Zuckerberg. That was truly cool. enjoyable. That was truly uh, enjoyable. Anyway.
1: And, um, you know, where they are willing to break out of the what will inevitably be a quite rigid NDP message box. And I think that could create some energy, and opening on the outside for people to keep pushing both the ndp and the liberals um playing this kind of parliamentary spear role that we've seen done so effectively in the states uh and i i mean i think if this is happening tomorrow uh so i can probably talk about it even because this podcast probably won't air till midweek but i do know that the our time activists are going to be doing a sit-in in jagmeet singh's office kind of like copycatting The action that the Sunrise Movement did when they occupied Nancy Pelosi's office, and then of course invited AOC in, right? Uh, She came by, endorsed their demands for a a green, the Democratic Party to take on the Green New Deal, and you know that was the kind of moment.
0: Heard her to Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) It it,
1: it did that, and it um, it also catapulted the Green New Deal into the national spotlight, right? So um, I'm hoping that there are similar moments that could be created by um, some NDP politicians who are willing to, to to kind of like go out of their, you know, that comfort zone that the NDP enjoys in Ottawa. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay, so go-
0: where do we go next? I mean, the Green New Deal seems to me uh, not the only important issue. There are There are tons of important issues. We didn't really talk about Indigenous issues, but the the pipeline announcement is is a pretty big fuck you, I think, on Indigenous rights. Right, like that—that's his first announcement out of the gate. And and do you think that this was a thing that we said we're going to talk about a little bit more last time? But how do you think Indigenous rights were treated in the election?
1: I mean, apart from apart from that, you know, uh, off the cuff shout out that Jagmeet Singh essentially gave to Indigenous rights and. You know, the struggle that Indigenous peoples in this country face with racism, there was, there was practically nothing. like.
0: Yeah, it was pretty, pretty it, shocking, actually, because it was so high-profile last time in the Liberal campaign. It was so high-profile
1: for the Liberals. Um, it has been persistently frustrating for me that the NDP, apart from a few exceptional MPs like Charlie Angus, who really get uh, anti-colonial struggles, since he worked for years with, with the Algonquins of Barrier Lake, who are one of the most badass communities uh, in the country, um, the NDP, especially the, the the central office, just have not put like not done their homework They're to understand.
0: They're and conservative, and they don't and want they, to do their but, homework. They don't want to do no, and, it, and it
1: especially came clear for Jugmeet in particular when he gave this interview, right after the um, the Unistotin blockade in northwest Northwest BC against the frack pipeline was you know and they were
0: um,
1: handled by the the RCMP. Um, he gave this interview in which he was asked about the rule of law. And, you know, Jugmeet gave that answer that shows that he knows nothing about the genuine uh, Aboriginal law uh, and, Supreme Court, and Supreme Court law.
0: Right. That, just uh, the whole thing that there's still a struggle around competing jurisdiction.
1: Yeah. He was like, well, of course, one has to respect rule of law. Whose like, law? what who's yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so that just showed that he, you know, he, he and the people around him haven't really done that work. They
0: don't have and a clue. And they didn't try to foreground the issues this time.
1: They they didn't even try to. The, and then the platform, there was really nothing substantial about the, you know, the key political demands that are at the heart of the indigenous rights movement in this yeah, country. They all so say
0: they're going to implement land. UNDRIP.
1: But- it was the usual UNDRIP, but there was nothing about land restitution, nothing about reparations. Nothing about the rebalancing of power that we need to see in this country if we're going to have any semblance of decolonization. So that's just...
0: uh, Maybe Leah Gazan will change that. Say what? Maybe Leah Gazan will change the tone in the caucus. I mean, Romeo Saginash was there for a while, and he didn't didn't seem to change their approach on these issues. She's got a bit more fire. A bit more fire, a bit more radical. Yeah.
1: Um, But I think it will... No, I think it's going to just. T- I mean, it's going to take the movement outside Parliament getting bigger and stronger. Um, I think ultimately it would help to draw more uh, connections between the the NDP and and movements. But certainly, like apart from what Libby Davies and Sven tried to do at certain points uh, in terms of opening up the party, right? There really, hasn't been any ink- you know inkling of interest from the party apparatus to do that. No, they think, so they think
0: movements are a nuisance. And uh, I mean, Jack notionally had an understanding that he always boasted that his screensaver on his computer was the word dialectics that would just float around on his. Really? Yeah. And and he said that you know if 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 I'm in government, you know, I I believe it's the job of movements to kick my ass. So, and he said because that creates space for me to do stuff, right?
1: (laughs) So the possible FDR line.
0: Yeah. And is that was that FDR's line?
1: Yeah, the apocryphal line. Right. He of course, like,
0: FDR was dealing with a mass communist movement.
1: But... He was. He was. But his line was, you know, you need, you, you need to make me do this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why all these sort of liberal funders, if they really wanted to create even liberal reform they would do so much better just giving a fraction of the money they give to all these liberal causes to far left organizing i mean they would they would get their liberal reforms much faster and they probably wouldn't get their left reforms unless you know the left did a better job than it's been doing so far but uh yeah and and i think that's where we're at here in canada we we're with this in this sort of static situation of not really having a political force that articulates clear left politics and a clear left vision. And so it's kind of coming together and inchoately through right now, the green new deal, right. Which, you know, sociologically is, is just has an extremely diverse composition and ideologically it's not a socialist movement by any means, but the implications of it are that the whole system needs to change. And I think that's the part that people get at a gut level and there isn't, there just isn't an ideological voice for it.
1: No, and you saw, I think you saw, which is really hopeful for me. You saw some of that anti-systems thinking, feeling, uh, in evidence in a lot of the climate strike rallies across the country, like yeah. especially coming from those young millennials and Generation Zers. Um, you're you're really getting a sense there. That's kind of like. Um, you know, kind of latent anti-capitalist uh, current to a lot of their actions. They get that everything needs to change,
0: and, and it's a, going to change. They get that everything is going to change. It's just that, in what way is it going to change? You know, is it going to change in a in any humane way at all, or is it going to be barbarism? You know, that's the we really are at the the moment in history. I think we're approaching the moment in history that people had thought was going to be sometime in the 20th century was the choice between socialism and barbarism. And I think that's the moment we're we're rapidly approaching, but without the subjective, you know, the, the organized political subject required to, to, to give us any kind of socialism at this point. So on that it's, happy note,
1: uh, well, I'll leave, I'll, I'll, leave well, I'll leave it with a slightly more. That's I'll your job.
0: It. Your job is I to think be, think
1: the, the stakes are huge. Um, And we're at a moment where the left's infrastructural, organizational capacities are nowhere near meeting that challenge. But I also think the political hunger is there. So we just need to figure out ways to translate that into... Yeah, so
0: that's all you listeners. That's your job. (laughs) Uh, Martin, you are now uh, on vacation for a bit after your long book tour.
1: I am just for a few days in the Laurentians.
0: Oh, that's nice. So you enjoy that. And uh, this is, I think we can wrap up here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening. We'll uh, see you next time. And remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. becoming a patron. Did you want to plug something, Martin?
1: Were you about I mean, to say if, something? I, if you want to buy my book, that, that'd be nice. <laughs> you where
0: can, where can find, they find your book.
1: You can you can order it online still at trudeauformula.com.
0: All right. That's great. Okay. Talk to you later.
1: Cheers, man. Take care.